We are Lone Star 187. Two sisters that love listening to true crime podcasts and decided to give this shit a try. Since we are Texas through and through, we will be researching murders across our Lone Star state. 187 is slang for the penal code for homicide. Since police codes are unique by city and county, we decided to simply use something that most people would get. We know this code isn't specific to Texas, but hey, we like it and it's our podcast, so we do what we want. How did we choose our first story, you ask? Most weekends we spend together with our mom. She is always telling us stories from the past. A couple of weeks ago, she gave us this gold nugget. She casually mentions something about our dad and granddad having to go pick up some bloody carpet from someone's alley. What? Tell us more, we said. And so it began. We will release a new episode each week along with interesting pictures we find during our research. We have all the usual social media platforms where you'll be able to find all of the goods. We look forward to telling you the stories we find interesting and in the most accurate way possible. Lone Star 187 most definitely contains elements that are not suitable for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Units heading out to that disturbance exit seat in a vehicle. Go ahead and reduce, but continue, reduce, but continue at one point. Case file 58, Mickey Bryan. We're back. We're back, y'all. Back for more. Who are we and what are we freaking doing here? Well, I'm Brittany and my this is my tiny little microphone. And I'm Carrie holding my tiny little microphone. And together we are Lone Star 187 with two tiny microphones. (laughs) Two tiny mics. But hopefully sound way better than our two giant microphones, which is a little insane that I paid $12 for two tiny microphones that sound better than two microphones that are 200 bucks. I don't together. think those were, were they $100 each? They were like 80 bucks yeah. each. And they're pile, and they're piles of shit. Piles. I think maybe something happened to one of them. Maybe it got knocked off the table because only one of them is bad. Correct. And then it makes, it's hard to tell which one is which. We need to mark it. We just get rid of them. Now that we know these work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so, where are we going this week? Are we going real far away? Or we're not we... going to go too far. We're going somewhere we've never been before. Like, I've oh. never been here. I don't know if you've been here, but okay. I've never been here. And we've never covered a story here. So, we're okay. going to Clifton, Texas. I have not it been to Clifton. 100 miles southwest of Dallas and 35 miles north of Waco. It's set in Boss County in the Hill Country. And it is named the Norwegian capital, Texas, because Norwegian immigrants settled there in the mid-19th century. Hmm. And in the 2010 last census, the population was 3,440. Wow. So it's okay. a town, a town. It's described like most small-town Texas towns. It strives on football. Football. School. And it's considered a Friday Night Lights town. Okay. So that's where we're going. Okay. Now, we will need to use the Wayback Machine, because I hate to show my age, but um, this is this happened like I was a couple months old. So, we're going to have to borrow it from... What is thicker? What is thicker? Just, let me just dial Joey real quick. Okay. So, I'm calling Joey, so you be Joey. Joey and Anna. Okay. Hey, Joey. Hey, what's up? 
Can I borrow your Wayback Batmobile? Sure, man. Just be sure to return it because, you know, we got record to do, too. All right, wait, we'll wait. Just... Let me check with Anna. Anna, do you mind if Lone Star 187 uses our Way, Way Back machine? No, man. I don't mind at all. Go ahead. Y'all good. Thanks, man. No problem. Okay, bye. So, bye. yes, we can use the Way Back machine. Okay, awesome. We're going to October 14th of 1985. Oh, I was fresh out of high school. I graduated in 84. I was a new baby. I was only two months old. I'd been out of high school oh, oh, a year at that point, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. I was having a good old time. <laughs> I'm sure. So we have a man by the name of Joe Bryan, and he is in Austin, Texas, at a principal conference, because he is a principal at, of Clifton, Texas, at the high school, and he is married to Mickey Bryan. So Mickey is staying home. So at the end of the conference, he goes back to his hotel. He's staying at the Hyatt Regency. And he calls his wife and says, you know, I love you. How was your day? She tells him, oh, you know, it worked because she's also a teacher. She works for the middle school, or I'm sorry, she works at the elementary school there in Clifton. So they talk about their day, and then together on the phone, they watch the CMA Awards. Oh, on the and, phone together. Yes, and they watch their favorite performer, Reba McIntyre, perform on stage, and she wins an award. So they talk about how great the show was, and then they say their goodbyes, and he goes to bed, she goes to bed. The next day, October 15th of 1985, a co-worker of, of Mickey Bryan, and she comes in around the, at, at the school around 7.15, and normally Mickey's already there. So she notices that her door's not open, and she thought, oh, she's probably just running late, no problem. So she goes and gets her class ready, and then looks down the hall and notices it's almost 7.30. The kids are going to arrive soon, and she's still not here. So the teachers start to worry, and they're, they start thinking, you know, she's always on time, and Joe's out of town. Maybe she went to visit him, she took a day off. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. So they go down to the principal's office, and they tell him what's going on. He's like, okay, well, I'm going to call the house. Maybe she overslept. Maybe she's sick. They call the house. No answer. So then the principal says, you know, I'm going to reach out to her parents. They live here in town. I'm going to see if maybe they'll go to the house and check on her or if maybe they want me to meet them there. Or maybe they've heard from her and they they just haven't had a chance to let people know. Right. So by this point, it's almost third period and the teachers um, have a break. So they're like, we're just going to drive down to Mickey's house and see what's going on. So the her teachers around her go drive to the house. And as soon as they get there, the house is surrounded by caution tape. And policemen and Mickey Bryan was found murdered in her home. So somebody must have found her if they get there and there's already caution tape and everything. Well, the the principal met the family, the parents up there. Oh, okay. So a little about Joe and Mickey. So like I said before, Joe Bryan is the principal of Clifton High School. And his wife, Mickey Bryan, is the fourth grade teacher at the elementary school. You know, in these small towns, there's one elementary, one middle, and one high school. Yep. That's it. Everybody knows everybody. And... At the elementary school, um, so Mickey grew up in Clifton, and she went to all these schools. So her family is has been there forever. She was always she's always been described as a very shy woman, easy to blush and be embarrassed, which kind of fits to be like a fourth grade teacher. And some of the people, um, so let me quote my sources. I got this from the Tribune Herald, Tribune, the Herald Tribune, Tribune. yeah. <laughs> The Forward Telegram, and then there's a 2020 episode called The Principal's Wife. Oh, okay. So, all very good. Um, Mickey Bryant influenced them or impacted their life in some way, whether she helped them in another class 
or with her being a fourth grade teacher, she had all the students. So at some point, someone had her as a teacher. And she loved all of her or students. Or one of their siblings or cousins mm-hmm. or something, right? She, Whenever she went to high school, she was Miss Clifton. And she excelled in all sports. She played basketball. And she excelled in everything that she did. Joe grew up 45 miles away in Elmont, Texas, which I had never heard of either. And it's two words, Elmont. Never heard of And he had a twin brother, and he was a cheerleader in high school. He wore the best clothes, and he was always looking his best. And some of the pictures I'll upload, you'll see he was always wearing, like, a button-down shirt and nice pants. Mm -hmm. Like, you never saw him. Hair always done. He loved music. He played the piano and all the other instruments for fun and in the church. So I love the story of how they met because it's so much like mom and dad. Okay. So Joe and Mickey met when they were in school at a young age, but they didn't start dating until their late 20s because Joe was dating one of her cousins. Aww. And Joe asked his girlfriend to come spend the weekend with him because he lived in Elmont, right? And she lived in Clifton. They know the rule. Good for them. So he said, hey, why don't you come spend the weekend with me? And she's like, okay, well, I don't want to drive there by myself, you know, because it was a drive. It was about an hour away. I don't want to drive by myself. Um, I'll bring my cousin Mickey, and we'll stay. And he's like, no problem. So they both go, and all weekend he's like, I think I'm dating the wrong girl. <laughs> I really like her. So they started dating, and a year and a half later they were married. Like others, they say, you know, they're true love, they're smitten, but they truly had a real love story. I mean, when you hear they did everything together, he said, you know, we never fought. We cooked together, we cleaned together, we went to the store together, and they saw him around town. Um, people said that every day, the neighbors, every day they went on a walk after dinner and they always held hands. Uh-huh. They Even when they were in the grocery stores, walking into school together sometimes, they would be holding hands. You could just tell there was a love there that wasn't forced or it was just a very open love. Like you could just tell they love each other. And their life revolved around their jobs, their friends, their church, and their students. Mickey was unable to have children. So they love their students like their own. Yep. So so they they had an entire school of kids. Right. They just had each other. And if the students didn't have coats for school, they would buy them. Mm -hmm. They didn't have school supplies. If they they wanted to play in the band and they couldn't buy an instrument, they would get it for them. There was no, it didn't matter. Whatever they needed, they would do. So that is Mickey and Joe. So So this is a case where it really wasn't the husband? I don't know. Okay. Could you stay in your lane? No. <laughs> you know I can't. Someone take the gas out of her car. She's always trying to get in my lane. Stay on your side. So when the principal arrived at the Bryan home, he immediately called 911 and police arrived at the house and they find Mickey Bryan laid out, sprawled on her bed with multiple gunshot wounds. She was shot four times with a revolver filled with snake shots. And I didn't know what that was. I don't know what it is. So it's a it's a blue casing. Yeah, a blue casing. I think it's a blue casing. With filled with BBs. Son Almost of a bitch. Like a, and so whenever it's shot, it like spreads blue particles everywhere because it's meant to kill snakes. So even if you don't hit it point blank, it's enough that it will injure them to where they'll go away. Okay. So she had been shot with, with these. So they said the room was covered in blue oh, pieces of plastic. She was shot once in the abdomen and three times in the head. So you can put that type of shell in a regular It was a thirty eight revolver. So I guess, though, that kind of bullet can still go in a regular gun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. And they, Interesting. Yeah. And there, there was blood splatter all over the room. I'm sure. Because of the way these were. You know, it was everywhere. And when I post pictures of the crime scene, I mean, there's literally blood everywhere. All over the walls, the pictures of the walls, the ceiling fan, the blades, the headboard, everywhere. What a horrific scene it must have been for them to walk in and see that. And to look at, she's a fourth grade teacher, you know? I mean, not that any life is less, but for someone so sweet, you know, to walk in and see that. And some of those people went to school and she was their teacher. And they walk in and they see their teacher sprawled out dead on her bed. So a colleague pulls Joe aside while he's at the conference and tells him the news. And he's like, I couldn't believe it. Like, how how did she die? When when did this happen? And he's like, I was immediately heartbroken. Like, I just felt the love of my life is gone. Like, I knew from this moment my life would never be yeah, the same. Half of and, me is dead right now. And my, how am I going to get through the next holiday without her? And, like, who's going to do this? And just how alone he immediately felt. Because he's like, anytime I would be sad, I would run to Mickey. And Mickey's gone. So they, they leave the conference. Joe had driven, him and his colleagues. So they, he obviously couldn't drive. So they drove the car and he sat in the back seat and they said he didn't talk the whole time. He just cried. He just had his head held oh, his head down and he just cried. Heart. He just cried. And then when he got to the house, of course, they wouldn't let him in. No. And he was just really devastated. And, of course, the town just couldn't believe it, you know, because, again, they always say it's a small town. Murders like this don't happen. They, these horrendous murders don't happen. And there were no possible suspects at the time, no witnesses. Um, they felt it was most likely a possible uh, burglary or mm-hmm. intruder that had gone wrong. Sounds um, like it. So like any case in Texas, Texas Rangers come in to help the case because this is a small town. So Joe Wiley is a Texas Ranger that comes in to assist Rob Brennan, who was the chief of police. Joe is interviewed and he tells him, you know, I just don't understand who would do this. I don't know why this would happen. I mean, the neighbors didn't hear anything. There's no witnesses. There's no signs of forced entry. There's, the doors are locked. And since the bullet was a different type, you may not hear it like a regular gun going. You know, like when you hear mm-hmm. a gun being fired, you know, oh, shit, that's a bullet. Like yeah. sometimes you might think, I don't know, is that fireworks or a bullet? But it's still distinct enough that you know it's possible. Mm-hmm. But with this type of round like I don't even know does it sound the same like that's a good question I don't know and but they do notice that so Mickey was in her nightgown and so she had no underwear so their concern is Mm. was she raped well thank god uh, for small miracles her rape kit was negative she was not assaulted they couldn't really see a motive but of course um they're assuming some robbery because some jewelry was missing her wristwatch was gone her wedding band was gone um some other small jewelry that Joe said was always out on the dresser was gone. And then they kept $1,000 in cash in the house in a brown paper sack, and it was gone. So they feel that, and then Joe's thirty-eight caliber revolver was missing. And he said, we keep snake shots in there because we get snakes really bad. Oh, shit. So they, they only used what was around them. They didn't, that wasn't even their gun. No, and his gun's missing. So, so once again, you stupid ass criminals, bring your own bring shit. Bring your own shit. Come on. So they're there when they're searching the house, they find a white pair of jockey underwear, which is not Joe's. Because he tells them, I don't wear that underwear, and you can go look at my underwear drawer. There's not one pair. So like it's it. men's underwear. It's a pair of white men's so underwear. So it's not hers, because you no. said she didn't have hers on. No. Okay. And they, yeah, they, it was not hers. 
And there seem to be stains which they feel is consistent with semen, mm. but they're not for sure. Because back, this is back in 1985. So, oh, so no DNA. Yeah. forensics is not up to par yet. Still learning about that. So they're investigating her murder, and so detectives realize that there's an unsolved murder that happened just four months prior to this of a 17-year-old girl named Judy Lou Whitley. And that's two murders in four months in a small town. Tell me they're not related. Yeah, that's true. I mean, when we look at, like, Clyde or Baird or these small towns in Texas that we've been in, like, you don't hear of that happening. Not unless you've got a serial killer in there that's just... Having, having fun. Having fun, yeah. Testing out his, honing his skills. So you rewind back to June of 1985. 17-year-old Judy Whitley is a sophomore at Clifton. She played in the band. And she told her, her mom, hey, I'm going to go walk up to the grocery store. Like she did all the time. I'm going to get some snacks. And I'll be back. Well, she doesn't return. So that night on the radio, they report her missing. And... The next day, police find her 50 yards by the grocery store in a wooded area. She had been raped and murdered. And three weeks later, a rumor is spread that Judy had a diary at her grandmother's house. This is like given out on the news. And that night, the house is blown up. (gasps) But no one's home. So now they're thinking, okay, what was in the diary? Because if there was something in the diary, then maybe that's why this house got blown up. So whoever blew the house up made sure that the grandmother wasn't there? The grandmother was out of town, just randomly out of town. So either they got lucky or they planned it because they didn't want to hurt the grandmother. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Okay. So no, there was no arrest or witnesses or leads in that case. Because all the information they needed was in the damn diary. Most likely, yes. And it, she was never seen. Nobody ever saw her walking to the grocery store. They People saw her there. Yes, she did. She came in. She looked around. She purchased some stuff. And then she walked out. And this was way before they had, you know, surveillance, CCR, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. CCTV yeah. and video and cameras everywhere. Right. So I guess the diary was so messed up that they couldn't read it at and all. The house exploded. I mean, it was. Yeah, but up. that doesn't mean that everything so is gone. There, there's nothing. Okay. There. Well, I mean, there was like toothpicks. Okay. Left of the house. So the toothpicks didn't burn. <laughs> You set me up for that one. So, of course, Clifton is, the whole town of Clifton is scared. Yeah, I would be. Gun sales go up by 40%. Don't walk (laughs) alone. Have a buddy. Don't walk at night. So, four days after Mickey's Mickey's murder, at her funeral, her brother comes from, her brother Charlie comes from Florida, and he's like a big executive guy. And, of course, he came, he didn't have a car, right, because he came to visit on airplane. He flew. He flew. So while he was here, here in Clifton, he used Joe's car. So Charlie okay, called. He, who, who's Joe again? Joe is Mickey's husband. Joe so Brian. he borrowed his dad's car. I'm sorry. Um, that would be his brother-in-law. Okay. He borrowed his brother-in-law's car. Yes. Okay. So Charlie is Mickey's brother. Okay. And he borrowed his, his brother-in-law Joe's car. car. Because Mickey's he flipped. Okay. Mm-hmm. With you. Got it. Sorry. So he's he's there, and so he calls one of his friends that's an FBI agent. He's like, hey, I want to hire you. I want you to help me figure out who killed my sister. I don't know what's going on. His name is Bud Saunders. So Bud comes out to the house, 
And he's like, don't worry, you know, I'll help you look into the case. I'll be on it, no problem. Even though the Texas Rangers are involved, he's bringing in this. Okay. Yeah. So on October 19th, Charlie and Bud are driving around in Joe's car. And so they stop. The FBI agent has to use the restroom, and they're on an old road. So they pull over. He goes over to the side of the road, relieves himself, and he gets some mud on his shoes. So they go to the back of the, of the trunk to open it to get a rag oh, to wipe his shoes. Oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And in the back of the trunk, they find a flashlight. And the flashlight has what looks like blood splatter and blue specks all over the front of it. No! Charlie and Bud are like, uh, what is this? So they call the Texas Rangers, and they get a search warrant to look through the car. Now, mind you, Joe has no idea this is going on. He's so Joe doesn't told. know that his brother-in-law borrowed his car, or he no, let him? He let him use it. He knowing No problem. Okay. But he just, he doesn't know that there's now a search warrant, and that he doesn't, he has no idea. I mean, he shouldn't, because if you tell him, then... Right. So they return the car back to, back to him. So when Joe gets it back, he realizes there's no gas in it. So he takes it to the gas station. They want all this gas. Yeah, right? <laughs> Assholes. Um, and then he uses a fuel additive to the car, I guess, because of the type of car it was. He had that, to add. You did that back then. Okay. At so older cars, you put went some to STP. The, he went to the back of the trunk to get this additive. And he noticed that that sack of money that he thought was missing was in the back of the car. And he realized that a week or so before, a couple weeks before the murder, that... Joe and Mickey had gone to Waco on a shopping spree and had spent $150. So there was $850 of that money in the bag in the back of the trunk. So the so bag that they thought was stolen really wasn't stolen. Right. It was in it the, was trunk, in the, the trunk, trunk the whole time. So he immediately calls the chief of police and he's like, hey, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot. I just found the bag, you know, of money. This is this is what happened. I yeah, I just slipped my mind on the worst day of my life. I wasn't thinking about that. Yeah. But now I do remember we went to Waco. He's like, you, I have receipts for what we bought. We went to Waco. We paid cash. And we left it here in the trunk and we just forgot about okay, it. Okay. That's logical. So now they feel like he's lying. Because they're I mean, like. I can see that. Yeah. We have this flashlight. And now he just happened to find this money. And the FBI agent. And we just searched the car. And we didn't see a bag of money. I was going to ask you that. The money wasn't there? Money wasn't there. Whenever. Okay. So So the next day, the lab comes back, and they say that the um, blood on the flashlight, all they can tell is type O, because there's no DNA. Okay. Well, she's type O, and the blue specks are consistent with the pieces of blue plastic in the bullets from the crime. So they feel that this flashlight was taken into the home, was being held when she was killed, and then taken out of the house. Or it was it was somewhere inside and yeah. got stuff on it. Whether True. it was being held or on the nightstand exactly. or wherever. So it was in the room when it happened. Since they feel that it's in Joe's car, he's responsible. So now they want to get a search. They want to get a arrest warrant for Joe. Come on, Joe. I'm already disappointed. Right. So on October 23rd, Joe is approached by the police chief, the sheriff, and the Texas Ranger. And they arrest him for the murder. And he just can't believe that they're choosing him. He's like, I don't know how you can think that I would kill my wife. Like, why would I kill her? Well, because we've already seen he, But he doesn't know that they saw in the trunk before. No. Because but they said the money, the money wasn't there. They said when they looked, there was no bag of money. Okay, so that right there is enough to tell you that maybe you didn't do it, but, like, what are you lying about? Okay, sure. Okay. So the town's like, we don't believe this. Like, there's no motive or reason. Like, you... Texas Rangers are coming in and looking at this, but we've been with these people their whole their whole relationship. Like, there's no reason he would but kill people her. can make you think that their life is one way. Like, it may here's not the be. Other thing. He also has an alibi, 
right? So he was in Austin, which is 120 miles away, okay? So somebody put that in after he got home? Can I finish? My bad. <laughs> so he was at a conference 120 miles away. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but remember the, the guy not, that was at work. If you when, don't when, stop talking, <laughs> I'm going to shut your mic off. I can't even get out his alibi, and you're debunking it. You haven't even heard it yet. I'm biased. Damn. I got a lot of stories under my belt. I know. I mean, believe me. As soon as I heard it, I'm like, he fucking did it. <laughs> and then it's like, I'm trying to go with an open mind. Okay. Okay, I'll shut up. So he's at a conference <clears throat> in Austin, 120 miles away, okay. which is at least two hours. If Absolutely. you go 60 yep. with no traffic. Facts. Okay. So he's there. Well, the night... That she went the night of the murder. There was a rainstorm that was in Austin and Clifton and then became a very dense fog. Mr. Brian, Joe, he could not see at night. So let's just say that he did do it. He would have to leave the conference as soon as it was over at five o'clock. But his colleagues had dinner with him in the hotel lobby and saw him go up to his room after six. Okay. So if he went up to his room, waited till the coast was clear, and left, let's say it's 6.30, through the rain, he would not have been able to make it in two hours. Maybe three. Okay? Go home. Kill her. Just walk in and shoot her. Right? And then get back to the hotel before anybody notices he's gone and in the conference room at 7 a.m. the next morning. Okay. How did the flashlight get in the back of his car then? I I mean, you're right. It, I cannot argue with you. If he if he's two hours away, it's not it, it's not it's not impossible. But mm-hmm. if you can't see mm-hmm. and if it's raining, it's it's dangerously it's dangerous to drive fast enough to make it happen. And if he couldn't see, that's even more dangerous. And then, then there's a dense fog. Fine. So he'd have to drive even slower on his way back. Right. It doesn't seem feasible. Fog. But how did the how did it get in the truck? So so rumor starts spreading through the town that. He killed Judy, and his wife found out, so he killed her too. And then people are saying oh, I that Judy that. cleaned their house, and his wife caught him cheating on his wife with her, so he killed her and then killed his wife. Okay. So these rumors just start spreading. Of course they do. It's right? a small town. They, they all watch Dynasty or whatever. So Joe is released on a $50,000 bond, and he's like, I'm not really concerned about showing you my innocence. I want to find out who did it. So okay. I'm not going to prove to you how I didn't do it. I don't need to do that. I need to find the killer. So that's okay. what I'm focused on. Okay. So he said that when he was at the Hyatt Regency, that he had a weird interaction with a worker there at the Hyatt named Jack Shaw. He said that the man approached him at the at his door of his room, and he said, I'm so sorry. He said he had a, a suit on with a name tag that said Jake Shaw, Jack Shaw, and he said he was a manager there at the Hyatt, the Hyatt Hotel, and that many maids were taking things from the rooms. So he said, I need your keys so I can make a copy. I'm sorry, so I can make sure the keys that we found are not from your your key ring. And he said that he took his keys and he left. His personal keys. Yeah. Not his room key. No. His, the keys to his house and his car. Yeah. So he said, I need to make sure. He said, I found Hell no. I found keys, so I want to be sure that that's not No, why don't you tell me, I'll tell you what my keys... I'm saying. I know. I know. So he Come said, on. He said, I gave it to him. No questions asked. So when the detectives looked into it, they said that they didn't know of a man named Jack Shaw. 
that that man didn't exist. No man ever worked there named Jack Shaw. They didn't know who he was talking about. And I of course, believe he let him get a copy of his keys. Well, I mean, he didn't know that's what was happening. Again, this man's from Clifton. I mean, Elmont and Clifton. You think he's going to think that somebody's going to take his keys? I mean, I, in my head, I'm like, okay, so what? This guy knows where you live? Like, that just seems really far-fetched to me. But okay. So, of course, they see, they see it the same way. And the detectives and the Texas Rangers are like, this guy is guilty as can mm-hmm. be. So when they were searching his car, they also found a Chippendales calendar. Oh, so now shit. They think he's gay. Right. So they think the motive was he was gay and she found out and so he killed her. Or maybe because he was buying her the calendar for Christmas. Because at this time, you could be arrested in Texas for homosexual acts. If they found out that you were doing homosexual acts, you could be arrested. Doing them where? In public? Or in your home. In 95? 85. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Now, you know, so now, so they asked Joe about the calendar and he's like, Mickey was with me and we bought that for one of our single friends as a gag gift. Like it wasn't a big deal. That's why I was in the trunk of the car. If I love gay men, wouldn't I have that hidden somewhere? Yeah, but I don't think there be gifts in my trunk, but okay. Well, I mean, when you, don't you, when you go to the store, don't you put stuff in the very back of your Toyota? Yeah, but. Okay. So if you don't have that, maybe you put it in your trunk. Or in the back seat. Yeah. Because, I mean, back then, trunks had a lot of shit in them. Your spare tire was back there. Mm-hmm. Your tire iron. Like, a bunch of shit. Mine always had dirty shit in there, so I never put anything yeah. back there. But well, so he's like... This is probably really I clean. mean, he had a good reason, and he said he told him the person that he bought it for, and that person's like, yeah, I can see them getting that for me. So, um, detectives start asking his friends if he was gay. And they, they showed them... The detectives showed the friends the list of motives, and all the number one reason was because he was gay. Number one was gay, and number two was money. So Mickey's family has completely gone against Joe, and they believe that he did it. They're oh, like, shit. they're like, we don't know why he did it, but he did it. Like it just make obviously he did it because who else would do it? So I fast forward to March of 1986. Uh, the murder trial jury selection starts, and Joe's twin brother comes to him, and he's like, "You need to request a change of venue." And Joe's like, absolutely not. If I want anyone judging me, I want my peers. I want people that know me to look at me and know that I didn't do this. So I'm not changing the venue. So -hmm. jury was selected. And then Mickey's family paid an additional $10,000 for another, for an additional prosecution lawyer. Shit. Additional to what the state was given. They must have had bank. But the part that's interesting is that the prosecution had no murder weapon. They found they, no weapon. I guess the only the only evidence is just that the stuff was in his car, right? They have no eyewitness, no forensic evidence at the crime scene. All they have is a flashlight. That was in his car. That was in his car. But it had blood on it and remnants of the blue snake pellets. That's so what saying. Mm-hmm. In that, and if you were out of town, the, how did that get in your car? I mean, I think that's kind of compelling in my opinion. So they felt the killer had to be either holding the flashlight or it was sitting in the room and they used mm-hmm. it to leave the house. But there's no trail of blood. There's no bloody clothes. So the prosecution felt like, well, obviously he lived there, so he just changed his clothes. Because a regular killer would have had to run out and there was no blood anywhere. That makes sense. So whenever the defense was talking about this part, they're like, you know, they had a lot of presumption, but they had no proof. They just had all these theories. And the judge usually doesn't allow stuff unless there's evidence. And he just let them talk. He didn't stop them. 
Hmm. And the defense tried to stop it, and he's like, no, it's fine. Well, the stain on the underwear most likely was semen, but was inconclusive. So So, they couldn't tell what it was. So Joe took the stand. He tried to defend himself. 36 character witness took the stand to prove and show the love that they had for each other, but the jury convicted him of 99 years in prison, and he was sent to Huntsville. Oh, shit. So in February of 1988, two years later... Yeah, eventually DNA is going to catch up with him, isn't it? So prosecution kept stating that money was a motive. And they said that there was a $300,000 life insurance insurance policy. On her. That's what they were saying. Well, Joe's attorney pulls it up and he's like, hold on. He he sends a 36-page appeal stating that the insurance policies, they had one on each other totaling $300,000. each. So together it was three hundred thousand. So because some of the main misinformation and the motive was wrong, it granted him a new trial. Okay, good. So then it was also moved to Comanche, Texas. I've heard of Comanche. That's closer to Abilene. So in June of nineteen eighty nine, he had a new trial, but the same judge was given, same information was was given, but at this time only five character witnesses came because the thirty one people were like, we are tired of hearing about it. We're tired of talking about He's it. Guilty. We've said what we're going to say. jury made their decision. Unless there's new evidence. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess I kind of get that. If there's not new evidence, you're basically just saying one of the things that changed was that it wasn't three hundred thousand dollars life insurance. It was only one hundred fifty grand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really all that changed, right? Right. So, Except for maybe you might be able to do some of the DNA. No, that was yeah. until the nineties, right? Mm-hmm. So three hours of deliberation. They they hold that it's same thing. Same thing. So there's a man named Leon Smith, and he's a publisher for the Clifton Record there in Clifton. And he followed the case from the beginning, and he's like, I'm telling you, this man is innocent. Not only have I read everything, but I know both of them, and so I know both sides, and I just ha- I have to do something about it. Mm-hmm. Building a case and just getting information. So in 1991, Don Whitley, who is the father of Judy Whitley, that was the teen that yep. was killed. Yeah, yeah. He comes into town and he is pissed. He's like, you know, my daughter's been gone for six years now and you have no information. None. And it's not fair. And I, I want some answers. And this guy's going on his third trial. Mm-hmm. Well, he's potentially. No, yeah. but but he's got somebody working on him a third oh, yeah, trial. He's got appeals. Yeah. Right. So Don contacts Unsolved Mysteries and he's like, I want you to play an episode on my daughter. So they contact the town and Leon is like, Okay, but we're gonna thunder. But we're gonna you. But if if we do that, you're gonna have to talk about Judy's case and Mickey's case because you can't talk about one without the other. You just can't. Even though his is hers, Mickey's is some considered solved. Mm -hmm. But if there are enough people in the town that believe he didn't do it, then it should be Right. right. So the police force refused to put the cases together and give the information to Unsolved Mysteries. So they never covered it. So they never covered it. But New That's Blood... That's kind of bullshit that yeah. they wouldn't let well, her do... New Blood has come through to the police force. Yay! For fresh, fresh <laughs> meat coming in there. So some of the new policemen are... They have put on the cold cases. And Judy was one of them. So... They start going through with fresh eyes, and they found that there was a suspect named Dennis Dunlap, who was a local cop. Are you kidding me? And he was described as strange, and he made very made women very uncomfortable in the town. So fast forward to September. So I wonder if he was the one in her diary. 
piece of shit. So Leon decides to enter. Leon is the guy that's uh, for the, in the town. Right. He's like, I'm going to go interview Joe in prison, and I want to talk about. The so Jews. Leon is the guy that's building his own case that works for the Clifton Journal. Correct. Got it. Okay. So he goes to prison and he talks to Joe about Judy Whitley and, and Mickey. And he said that they spoke for four hours. And Leon asked him about the Judy case. And Joe said, well, me and Mickey were in Arkansas when that happened. He's like, you can check my credit card statements. You can check whatever you want to. But we weren't in Texas. We were both in Arkansas. She went to school. I mean, she went to our school. So we knew her. And when we got back, we heard about it. And he said, I just heard that a cop had done it. And he told people, don't believe rumors, only believe the truth. And then after he gets arrested, people will believe all the rumors. But Leon published the interview, but he did not put the name of the cop that Joe had heard, which was Dennis Dunlap. Because Leon, that was like his smoking gun. He's like, I'm going to put that on the side, and I'm going to take it to the police. I want to fish on Because I feel like if this was an inside job, then they may cover it up, and I'm not going to let that happen. Or if you don't say the name, someone might come forward and say, I know who you're talking about. Right. So Dennis Dennis Dunlap had joined the Clifton Police in January of 1985. Oh, wow. And he had more enemies than friends on the force. He hit on women a lot. So coincidentally, Judy's sister Patricia was hit on by Dennis whenever he arrived into town. And she agreed to go on a date with him. And they went to Waco. They spent the day. And they went back to his apartment afterwards. And she said when she arrived that along the walls of his apartment, he had pictures of women, like, strewn up, strewn up. Is that the word? The pictures were, were... There are pictures of women in, like, chains and, like... The pictures were them yeah. chained up. And they weren't, like, pictures he took. They were, like, pornographic-type pictures. Oh, that he cut out of magazines and yeah. shit? Okay. All along the wall. So she's like, so as soon gross. as I walked in, I'm like, yeah, I'm not staying here. And she's like, you know, I need to go. And he was, like, trying to get her to stay. And she's like, yeah, I just... Well, I think I should leave. And she said, I left and I never went out with him again. But he was known in the town to being obsessed with women and following women. Like women would see him come into a store and if they were by themselves, they would leave. Or they would turn their sign to close when he'd walk by. Because he just made everybody uncomfortable. Elaine Allen was his wife after dating him for one week. She dated him for one week and then she married him. And then got married him. Did she not see the women in chains pictures hanging on the wall? I mean, only one week. Who knows if she even went to his apartment. So immediately after marriage, she said he completely changed. She's like, just like a switch. She said one night he wanted to handcuff me during sex. And she said, oh, we ain't doing that here. I'll have to show you the video. She's like, oh, no, that's not happening in my house. Sorry, that's not going to happen. And she said even though they were married, sometimes she'd be in the house and she didn't know where he was. And she's like, oh, maybe he went to the store or he went here or went there. And then he would come inside the house. He's like, you know, I was watching you, right? Oh my god. So being married outside? being married to her, he would go sit in his car with night vision goggles and watch her from across the street what in his own house. Creep. Yeah. So she said, I told him, You're crazy, leave and don't ever come back. Yeah. So she's like, two weeks later we were done. So Dennis volunteered to give the family the news of Judy. He wanted to be the one to tell the family that Judy had been killed when they found her. He volunteered. Yeah, he wasn't even Isn't that the job that nobody wants, that you you do it because you have to, but not because you want to? Then he asks to take a lie detector test as part of Judy's case because he dated her sister. 
He passes the test. But he probably test, passes if he... And then he resigns and leaves town the next day. And nothing is done. Okay. This guy's a fucking psychopath. He did it. He did so, all this shit. Fast forward to April of 1996. Texas Rangers call Clifton police to let them know that Dennis Dunlap was found dead. He hung himself in his garage. What a chicken shit. So they reach out to Dennis's most recent ex-wife after he left Clifton. And Dunlap told her that Texas Rangers may take him away any day, that he was a suspect in the Judy Whitley case. And he would call his mom randomly and say, they're going to come get me. They're after me about the murder in Clifton. I just know they're going to come arrest me. And she would tell him, like, why do you keep saying that? He's like, I just know. I just know they're going to put it on me. He just kept talking about the gray tape in his car. I'm glad they never found that. I'm glad they never found that. And so... Was there a gray tape on either one of them? I didn't say. Okay. Texas Rangers interviewed uh, Dennis Dunlap's friends. They're like, oh, yeah, he, he told me he killed a girl named Judy. And what he did and where he put her and the details that they had matched the details of the crime that didn't, was not released to the public. So his friend, their friend told him that he killed somebody Mm -hmm. and they just didn't do anything about it? No, because he told him he was a cop and if they told him then he would get him arrested for something. You can't do that if you're in jail for murder, dumbass. So in, so three years later, in 1999... The newspaper basically says that Dunlap killed Judy. Like, because they can't do anything, he's dead. But they basically closed the case. Well, in 2012, Walter Reeves, who works for Innocence Project, decided to take on the case of Joe Bryan. Because he felt that there was way too much evidence. There was not enough real hardcore evidence. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence. And with all this information with Dennis Dunlap, he just felt that the crime to Mickey was so heartless that it would have to have been somebody that didn't know her. So he starts going through the case and he's like, you know, I'm going to ask for a DNA test of the blood on the flashlight. The analysis of the blood on the flashlight wasn't blood. What was it? They don't know. Could have been red paint. Can you guys hear this? Okay. So in reviewing, so there's that. And then reviewing the interrogation tapes of the different people they spoke to, interviewing some of the tapes, and the ex-wife, his most recent ex-wife, said that... Wait, wait. Who's most recent ex-wife? Dennis Dunlap's most recent ex-wife. Okay, I thought we were talking about Joe's... We are, but they're... But, so Walter Reeves took over the, the case, and he's going through and listening to all the tapes. On both cases. What do you mean both cases? Well, we have the case of Judy, and then we have Joe's case. So we're reviewing Joe's, the evidence against Joe. The flashlight didn't have blood. Okay, so I thought you were talking more about that. But now we're switching to Judy's stuff. Well, no, no, he, no, Walter Reeves wanted to listen to the tapes, the interrogation tapes of Dennis Dunlap. Okay, okay. And, and see if there's anything that okay. correlated. And in that, in there, Dennis Dunlap's ex-wife stated that Dennis told her that he was dating Mickey when she died. Oh, okay. And that he saw her the night she was murdered. They went out and he dropped her off at home. But she wasn't dating anybody because she was married. Happily. Well, I mean, if he's just putting himself there because he was there, then there's that. Okay. He could have been lying, right? But either way, he's putting, he's saying there's some interaction with them too. So they decide to go 
back to trial, and they're like, we're, we have enough evidence, so they're given a retrial. And they stand before the judge, and they tell him all of this. So the main piece of evidence that the prosecution had before... Was the flashlight. Was the flashlight. Well, if the flashlight doesn't actually have blood on it, and the blue particles wasn't from the plastic, it was from the, the flashlight itself deteriorating. Because the... the they, they oh, my God. picture of the flashlight, it was blue plastic. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I imagined a black flashlight with blue pellets. No, I'll show you a picture. It's a blue flashlight. Oh, my God. So they were just trying to frame him, it seems like. Or just make it stick. Just make it stick. Make it work. So if you take that piece out of it, would you still say he's guilty? No, because that was the only... I kept saying, well, how did the flashlight get in mm-hmm. there? Because that was the only thing that they were saying seemed from... Seemed like it came from the crime scene. Right. So they go. So no, that's all they, they had. They show the evidence, and it comes back. They're like, "Yeah, that's not enough to exonerate him." What? They, 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 he wasn't even in town. They don't. They don't believe it. So what about the are, money? Here, the bag of money. Okay. Here we are in 2018. He's been there for 30 years. You look at his record. Every time he asks for parole, he's denied. He's a model prisoner. All he does is play piano and read books. Have they done any uh, more DNA analysis on the underwear that they thought was semen? Oh, okay. I'm so, then, so then his family keeps asking him, like, why don't you just say you did it and ask for, like, a plea deal? And he's no. like, I am not going. I would rather die in here than say that I killed the love of my life. Yeah. He said, she was way too precious for me. I couldn't. I can't do that. Yeah. I'd rather die here. Just let me. Just let me go. So a woman by the name of Pamela Koloft reads the articles that Leon had published. And she goes back and does her own research. And she decides to release an article called Blood Will Tell. And I think she put it on Texas Monthly, but she also put it on somewhere else. And John Grisham sees it. (gasps) And he's like, oh my God, I read this article and I was immediately immersed in it. Like, I couldn't get enough. I read it over and over. He's like, it read like a novel. Mm-hmm. He said the sloppiness of the prosecution, the detectives, small town Texas, all that. He's like, it just, it didn't make sense. And he's like, and then the blood splatter expert just didn't make sense when I read his testimony. His attorney, the one that, the Innocence Project. Joe's attorney? Uh-huh. Walter, let me get his name. I can't remember his name. Walter Reeves. He decides to do more research into the blood splatter expert. This blood splatter expert, which granted was still a new thing in 85, had no scientific degree or background. How did he get the job? He took, he went to one seminar four months prior. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. I would have done it too. So he takes this information. Definitely no Dexter. To an actual, to an actual expert and says, I want you to read this report. And she sees the testimony. She's like, oh my God, this is the worst case of blood splatter. Like he had no idea what he was talking about. He had no idea what he was saying. Like, this guy doesn't, he doesn't know. That's why he's the one who said what was on the flashlight was blood. And it wasn't even blood. That's a blood splatter expert had given, and they consider it unreliable. So John Grisham himself goes and visits Joe in prison. Wow. And he's like, this man was Santa Claus. He was your Sunday school teacher. He was the nicest man you'd ever meet. He did not kill his wife. Well, it prompted him to write a book called The Guardians. So now I want to read it. Yep. But he writes in the back of the book that he wrote that book because of this This story. Yeah. So in August of 2018, they have an evidentiary hearing. And they decide to see if we can get a new trial now that new evidence has been given. Right? Like this, the blood, 
that we have, we've already talked about the flashlight isn't real, right? And now the blood splatter expert that stated what was on the flashlight was blood and how the blood got where it got in the room isn't true. All of it's false. So they bring blood splatter expert Celestina Rossi. And she gets on the stand and tells them, like, this is the most unscientific false reading I've ever seen. Before they had the hearing, the uh, attorney for the Innocence Project talked to Robert Thorman. He was the original, quote-unquote, blood splatter expert. Oh, he's a seminar guy? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And he wrote in his affidavit that he was incorrect and his testimony was wrong. So he definitely... But at the time, he thought he was right. He's like, okay. I was at ignorant. least he was a big enough person yeah. to admit that. Look, this mm-hmm. looking back on it now, after the experience he gained, he's probably like, oh my god, I forgot about that. Was my first case and I sucked, right? Yeah, and instead, and he was big headed and thought he, you know. So they also brought up the evidence of of, of Dennis Dunlap and how the witness his the witness statement, the ex wife statement, how he said he knew her, he was dating her, all that. Well, the prosecution's like, oh, the ex-wife's a drug addict, she's unreliable. Well, of course. And even if you take the blood and you take everything off, he was still a liar, and um, he wanted the life insurance money. Well, the judge denied the new trial and overturned the conviction and denied parole for the sixth time. Was it the same judge again? Different judge. Hmm. I wonder why. Well. I'm about to find out. In April of 2020, Joe Bryan is released. Yay! We don't know why. What? We don't know why. They just said, we're going to release you. Was it his age? He was 79. Was it his age? Was it the pandemic? Was it because he had heart failure and he's too expensive? Overcrowding? It might have been the pandemic. I bet it was a pandemic. Maybe they felt like, oh, dang, you know, like, maybe we are wrong. We don't know. We don't want to say we're wrong. So let's just let him go. Like... He was, it wasn't even time for it. He had been denied all his paroles. Like, he had accepted he was going to die in prison. Fucking Texas, man. And then one day, they're just like, you can go home. And you know, he's like, wait, of, for real? Are in the not, middle of a pandemic. You're going to send me home to die? Yeah. Right? You're going to put me out with the coronavirus? So he moves in with his brother 200 miles from Clifton. But he had to wear, he has to wear an ankle monitor for the first year. That's fine. But At least he's free. But he's not exonerated. Like, they didn't, like, take it off. Like, he's still considered a convicted felon of murder Aww. of his wife. That's fucked up. And and so they asked him. They said in the interview, they asked him, "Do you know who? Do you know who did it?" And he's like, "If I had to guess, it'd be Dennis Dunlap." He said, "I don't know if maybe she was walking on her nightly walk, and he picked her up and took her home." And he's like, "I don't know. I really don't know." And he said, "Maybe he took her. Maybe he took her key, made a copy. He's a cop, you know. Who knows what? Who knows how he got a key? But the door was locked. Front door was locked. So." And it wasn't the guy that was in Austin because he wouldn't have had time to, like, surely he didn't follow him to Austin, ask for a copy of his keys, drive back and do that? I mean, maybe. Well, he knew who Dennis... That's pretty dedicated. He knew who Dennis Dunlap was because he worked as a... Oh, so he would have recognized him. him. Yeah. Unless he got somebody to do it for him. I don't know. But why her? Like, what? Like they didn't... What they stole wasn't significant enough. And he didn't even rape her. No. And the first girl... But I... I think he only raped the first girl because his her sister denied him. I think that was retaliation. And maybe maybe um, Mickey was not fighting him, and it wasn't a turn on, so he stopped. Yeah. And then he was like, "Well, shit, I'm too far. I, she's seen my face, mm-hmm. and I can't rape her, but I'm gonna go ahead and kill her." Because mm-hmm. I know if you don't fight, sometimes they don't they don't like that. They no, like they want the struggle and the power. Yeah. 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 So. 
I mean, it's it's a somber ending. It because is very sad, but at least he's out. He is, and he was talking about how his nieces are teaching him how to use, he's like, I'm not technology. Internet. Because, I mean, he was arrested when he was 44. So more than 30, 35 years in jail. And so he was in jail for, what, 35 years? Mm-hmm. Well, and thankfully Judy's case was solved. So her and family just, can and, and you know and then like as soon as he he leaves town right right after Judy dies or right right after Judy is killed he leaves town he resigns and leaves so there's no proof that Dennis was in town during that time when Mickey was killed right so it may not have been him maybe it wasn't and he so, killed himself because they questioned his ex wife and he knew they were coming they didn't question his ex wife till after they found him dead oh okay. So maybe just the demons in his head got the best of him, and he was paranoid and thought somebody was they were after him. They're gonna come after him, yeah, because then he kept telling his mom and everybody else they're gonna come after him. So I think sounds he like he was a paranoid psychopath. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's, that's the a good story. It's a good one. Yeah. Lots of twists and turns. When you had I, me rolling. I didn't know. I know. I was couldn't I, figure it out. You know, because I always think the husband did it right. You just always do. But even when you hear him talk, and I'll put some videos and stuff. When you hear him talk and you see his face, you're like. And then again, I always go back to motive. Like, let's say he wanted one hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, motive was, is a big. What was he going to do with it? He wasn't. He was a principal. They yeah. both had full time jobs. It's right. not like they were broke. And they had a house. They didn't have any children. And they were well well to do. I mean, they were able to take care of other people's kids. And they knew everybody in town. They both grew up in small towns. So what would he get from killing her and having one hundred fifty thousand dollars? He'd be by himself. And not only that, they you can't really say money is the motive if you can't prove that they were financially strapped for cash and that he needed the money right away. Right. I mean, usually they were, if they it's for money and it really is, there's some kind of problem with the cash flow. Well, and it doesn't and seem like they had a cash flow. No, flow to problem. hear that they could put an, in eighty five a thousand dollars in cash in a bag and just have it for a shopping spree. Tells me they did not need And money. then forget it was in your trunk? Yeah. Like, you think I'm going to forget that I've got $850 in cash and Betty White? Girl, I don't know. When I do laundry, oh, I got $5 um, in those jeans. I rarely even have $20 in cash. <laughs> I'm like, hey, ooh, I, I have $5 I in I got to get jeans. that shit. I have a couple dollars in the car. I know where it all is. It just... Yeah. It doesn't. I, you're right. It does always tie back to motive. And they never found the gun. His gun was never found. And her stuff was never found. So if they pawned it, they didn't pawn it anywhere nearby. And her wedding band, too. That's so sad. Piece of shit. That's Good the story. story of Mickey Bryan. Rest in peace, Judy. And rest in peace, Mickey. And enjoy your freedom, Joe. Yeah. Enjoy your freedom. Yeah. He's and come on, Texas. Get your shit together. Stop doing shitty police work, you small town Texas cops. Don't be, if you don't want to do your job, get a different job. Don't be fucking lazy. Mm-hmm. We have too many stories that start like that. Mm-hmm. And had they not gotten new blood there to re-examine It seems like stuff. that happens a lot too. Like uh, people, fresh me coming mm-hmm. off the, out of the police academy, they go in and they just want to solve everything. Well, they, well they're not friends with the good old boys. Like, right. Like this guy, Dennis Dunlap, he must have made friends with people, which, I mean, I say that, but some of the guys on the force that talked about him said... I didn't like him. He was a weird guy. I didn't like his character. I didn't like the way he did his job. I didn't get along with him. So it's not like they would want to cover him. So he was him. on the fringe the whole time. But yeah, he had a lot of frenemies. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. So that's the story. If you um, if you go to 2020, I think it just aired like a month or so ago, and it's called The Principal's Wife, um, and it's good. Sounds good. Yep. And then now there's a John Grisham's book called The Guardians that's 
based off of this real life story. It's a good one. Good yep. good job. All right. So until next time. All right. All right. Bye y'all. Bye y'all.